So through the month of November, we are going to be looking at the book of 2 Corinthians, um, an interesting book, perhaps a book not so regularly um, looked at or preached through, but a really important and a really, I think, helpful book in terms of um, us as 21st century Christians and our walk with Christ. Let me pray, then we're going to jump into it a bit more. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it opens our hearts and our minds. And Lord, we pray that this morning as we come before it, that we might hear you speak. Lord, we might hear your words um, through me. Lord, that we might be open to your message for us uh, and how it is uh, we should be encouraged to follow you more closely and more keenly in our lives. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity now. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen. So Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Um, We have uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians, um, but there were um, other letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. There's likely one letter between 1 and 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is likely to be a composite of two different letters brought together. Long story short, Paul spent a lot of time writing to the church in Corinth because there was a lot to write about. There was always things going on in Corinth uh, that required a letter or two or an extra visit. But before we get into that too much, let's start with a little bit of background um, on Corinth. Uh, For some, this might be familiar because we talked a little bit about Corinth when we did uh, a a series on 1 Corinthians a while back. Um, But Corinth in what is modern-day Greece um, was a very affluent Um, metropolitan city right in the heart of what was the empire at the time. It sits on this little land bridge between these two gulfs, the Saronic Gulf and the Gulf of Corinth, which I learnt this week is called an isthmus. That's how you say it, right? Yeah, that one. Um, I had to Google that one. Uh, And that was an important strategic position because if you were to um, ferry goods from one end of the empire to the other end of the empire, you would go through Corinth. Today there's a canal. They cut this canal um, through that land bridge. It's a couple of kilometres long. But back in the time of Paul, um, what you would do is you would sail your boat up to one side and you would unload all of your goods onto a wagon or two wagons or three wagons and you would wagon it over the land bridge of a couple of kilometres, you'd put it on another boat and off it would go. It was a safer um, way of doing it because you don't have to go around that that bottom kind of um, southern part of Greece into the more open waters. You could stay in the gulfs, which are a little bit calmer. Um, it was quicker. Uh, it made a lot of sense. <clears throat> a good thing to do. Which meant for Corinth that they were the centre of an awful lot of trade because you had all of these people coming in and out and they would be resupplying and they would be, you know, selling their goods and all of that kind of stuff. It meant that you had a lot of people from all different places because whether you were going from the east to the west or the west to the east, there's a good chance you'd go through Corinth. So they were very metropolitan. They had people from all different parts of the empire that spoke different languages that were from different cultures um, it was a very well-off, affluent, cosmopolitan part of the empire. Which many commentators have noted 
is a lot like modern-day Sydney. And a lot of modern-day cities have a lot of similarities with Corinth in terms of its, its makeup, um, its, its kind of um, the economy, the way the economy worked, the way that it was multicultural and cosmopolitan and all of these good things. Um, for us, as you read um, more about the, the, the Corinthians and the, the challenges they have, you can kind of see them mirrored in our city today because of all these similarities that strike us as so clear. You know, we're both um, harbour cities, we're both affluent cities, we're both multicultural cities. We both have kind of the best of all of the world at our fingertips. Um, and in that, some of the struggles which they had 2,000 years ago still are happening uh, today in our beautiful city of Sydney. So as we go through 2 Corinthians, we're going to note um, that there's these, these challenges they have, these traps they fall into, these struggles they have, um, which we as God's people continue to have. We continue to fall into the same traps and have the same struggles for a range of reasons, which means for us there is a lot to glean and to learn from um, the challenges that the people in Corinth have, particularly as Paul writes to them in this letter of 2 Corinthians. But let's jump into the chapter. Chapter 2 is where we've started. Um, most of this chapter is what I call housekeeping. You know, like Paul writes a letter and sometimes he's like, oh, and I left my jacket at Uncle Bill's and, and tell Aunty Judy to, to take the washing off the liner. You know, like it's, a lot of it's kind of just housekeeping. Like he's writing this letter, but he's also got to say, oh, don't forget to tell this person this and don't forget to all of that kind of stuff. So there's quite a lot of housekeeping in this chapter um, when Paul is talking about specific things that have happened between himself um, and the church, um, he kind of opens by, by mentioning one of these specific things. Uh, verse 1, So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. He's referring to an earlier visit he had to Corinth when he had to set them straight, right? There was a lot of setting the, the Corinthian church straight, um, sometimes by letter, sometimes in person. Um, they were quite famous for figuring out every possible way of getting it wrong. They pretty much canvassed them all, you know. They, they, they really they um, perfected it to a fine art. Um, like in 1 Corinthians, um, one of the things Paul's writing to them about is the way they understand grace. You see, because for, for the 1 Corinthians, they thought, oh, God's grace is so good. That means we can sin as much as we like. But not just that. They thought, actually, we should sin more because the more we sin, the more God gets to show his grace. And the greater he is revealed in the world. So Paul has to go, no, guys, that's not, you kind of got it. It's like a bit of a horse before the cart situation here. You kind of got it a bit back to front. Um, but his last visit to them was one of these sorts of visits where he had to set them straight on a range of things. Uh, have a look at verse 4. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depths of my love for you. Speaking again about his writings to them. He corrects them not out of um, some sort of power trip or some sort of joy in um, telling them what's what and telling them how to be and what to do, but he writes them out of his love for them. That is what he writes to them about. He sets them straight, not because he likes to lord his authority over them, but because of his heart for them. 
They talk about how there's a need for forgiveness. There's a need for forgiveness between um, him and them and them and each other. And, you know, whoever's forgiven, I've forgiven, and whoever you've forgiven, there's a bit of that kind of stuff that goes on. They need to spend some time building some bridges and mending some hurts. But I want to focus kind of on four, from um, verse 14 onwards. <coughs> Where he writes, Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To one we are the aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. Who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Paul uses this really interesting analogy, this beautiful language, captives in this triumphal procession, right? Cool, sounds great, but what's he talking about? <laughs> what does he mean when he's talking about this in verse 14? What he's referring to specifically is um, this uh, well-known event in the ancient world, which is the triumphal procession particularly of returning Roman generals, right? They have won some battle far off in a far off land and the time has come when they return and there is this procession that they uh, proceed through the city streets and by all accounts it's like every bit of pomp and ceremony you could possibly imagine um, rolled into one it's you know like it's the it's the opportunity for them to not only um, celebrate their triumph but also to display their power so you can see in that little picture there, there's elephants in the background that sometimes they would bring elephants back to, to, to lead the procession, to, to tow the chariots. Um, there would be wagons filled with gold and plunder that they, that they have won from these, these other nations. Um, they, the, the general would be wearing, um, holding golden scepter and wearing crowns and, you know, it would be the most spectacular thing for all to see. But also what they would have with them is the captives, the defeated captives. They would be part of the procession and they would precede them through the city, of course, at the other end where they would give them a, a, a public um, hanging or crucifixion or whatever it was, right, you know. They loved a public execution in, in, in the Old Testament, New Testament times, didn't they? But part of this procession was display of their strength and their power and to show um, how they have defeated their, their enemies, and you can all witness to the final end of these defeated foes. <coughs> so Paul is returning, he's referring to this in the way um, he goes through life being led by Christ. An interesting analogy for a few reasons. Firstly, the question we need to ask ourselves is where does Paul place himself in this procession? Where is Paul? Is he on a chariot? Is he on the back of an elephant in glory being brought through the city streets? Actually, we'll have a look. Verse 14, uh, where he says, um, we are led as captives 
in the triumphant procession. Where does Paul place himself in this procession? Not in the position of victory, but as a defeated captive being led to his execution. Isn't that fascinating? How does he see himself in this procession? Paul, more than anyone, recognises that he was an enemy of God. He was quite literally doing his best to destroy the church. He's chasing the Christians around in the very, very beginning and he's you know, putting them to death where he can and he's trying to stir up trouble for the church. But on the road to Damascus, he was defeated. He met his match. Christ comes in his glory and his power and he realises that he is defenceless before him. And what does he do? He recognises that now his life is forfeit. It is now Christ's. He has won his life. And as he goes through uh, this world, he is led in this triumphal procession, not as a victor, but as one who is defeated, as one whose life is forfeit in Christ because Christ has won the victory. And everywhere he is led in this procession, throughout all the streets, he says, the aroma of Christ emanates from him and from all those that go with him. It's a beautiful imagery, isn't it? I think Glenn did a great job of having all the different smells, you know. Like um, when one of the kids was saying, it's lavender, I, I immediately thought of my grandma's house, you know, like the pot puree stuff, that lavender. I, I mean, people know what I'm talking about. That lavender smell, you know, like that smell has this strong memory for me. Uh, and Paul uses this imagery of this aroma. And the word aroma isn't stench. The word aroma is something that is, that is pleasing, something that is nice, that flows out from everywhere that Paul is led as a defeated captive in Christ's triumphant procession. Um, we used to live in Normanhurst, and around the corner there was this Orchie factory. Do you remember Orchie Fruit? It might still be a thing. I don't know. Um, but I don't know what they did there exactly. But I could tell when they were doing it, right? Because I would go for jogs at night, before kids. I would go for jogs at night, and um, the whole neighbourhood would smell sweet. As in, like, the whole neighbourhood would smell like, like pressed, pressed fruit juice. It was lovely. Like... It almost, almost felt like after a jog I'd probably put on a couple of, you know, like I'd like just absorbing all of the, all of the fruit juice as I went. It took me a long time to figure out what it was because sometimes I'm just like, what is this smell? You know, like maybe you go past someone's house and they've been cooking something strong. You can smell it. But like the whole neighbourhood had this smell about it. I, I eventually I figured out that it must be when the Orchi factory is doing something. I didn't know what it was. But the aroma of that event lingered and I could tell that something had gone on. So Paul says, as he is led through his life on his missionary trips, on all of the places that he goes and all the people that he meets, the aroma of the procession of God um, emanates throughout the world to all those that he meets. The scent of God is this lingering thing that follows on the path where he goes. But what is this aroma? What does it emanate from? Not from his strength, not from his power or his wit, not from his ability to, to perform miraculous deeds in the places that he goes. It emanates from his defeat. 
He is a captive in this procession. It emanates from the fact that Christ has won the victory and he now owes his life to him. And as he follows him where he is called as a defeated one in weakness, God is glorified and his true nature is revealed. This is an important theme that Paul starts with in Corinthians that he will continue with um, as he goes through this book. One of the challenges that Paul is facing in Corinth is that there are these new teachers. It's always the problem in the, in the ancient world. There's new teachers coming in saying, you guys are getting it wrong. Listen to us. We know better. They call themselves the super apostles because they're better than all those other apostles, particularly Paul. They'll spend their time talking about all the ways that Paul's no good and building themselves up. So Paul, in response to this kind of attack on his own character or virtue or his own strength and ability, doesn't defend himself by saying, oh, what do you mean? I'm, I'm great. He actually agrees with them. He says, you're right. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a defeated captive walking in Christ's triumphant procession. It, it is not by my strength that anything happens, only through the work of God revealed in the work of his apostles. And the Corinthians, they're a, they're a fallen bunch of people um, and they see <coughs> these new guys coming in with all of their, um, their flair and all of their, um, you know, great ability to, to talk and to convince and, and they're kind of attracted to that. These new guys come in and they're like, oh, yeah, I guess these guys are right. I mean, look, look at what's going on for them. Don't we, we should get on board with that. Don't worry about what Paul's talking about. These guys are the guys that seem to have it all going on. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was like, wow, you know, some things in, world, in this world really don't ever change, hey. Because are we not just like that? Are we not so often attracted to the flashy, to um, the strong, the powerful, the charismatic, the beautiful people in this world, um, you know, it, it's a strange time with which we live that the way often you get ahead in Christian leadership is through self-promotion. Like that seems to be the way that you get ahead through creating this narrative of your own brilliance, whether it's true or not, it usually isn't. But the way you get ahead is by creating this idea that this is who you are, whether it's true or not, and then people will gravitate to that idea, that image but what does Paul tell us? What does Paul say in the face of uh, this sort of leadership? He says, no, 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 in weakness and humility, that is where the aroma of Christ is found. That is where the gospel is truly revealed because the truth of the gospel can only be revealed in humility. It can never be revealed in pride, because if a preacher truly knows the gospel, what else can they be but humbled? What else can they be but recognize they too are an enemy of God defeated, whose life is now forfeit to him? How can you be anything but? And only in recognizing that can you truly share the gospel to people who are in the same boat as you. 
Have a look at verse uh, 15. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one we are aroma that brings death, to the other aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? This, this uh, struck a chord for me this week. Um, it made me think of um, a lot of the funerals that I do for people whom I've never met. It's, it's an interesting situation to be in. But I guess it's a good one. I prefer to do funerals for people I haven't met rather than for people I know well. Um, but I often do funerals for people for whom I never have met and I only meet the family and hear the stories through them, right? I know nothing really of these people. Some of them um, are Christian people from Christian families. Some of them um, are not. Um, the other day we did a really big funeral here. Perhaps some of you have heard it was for a teenager who died in a car crash. There was 500 odd people here. It's pretty terrible because what else could it be except being pretty terrible? Uh, and as people were getting up and speaking, you know, I couldn't help but just be overcome by the, the sense that there wasn't, there wasn't any hope. I don't think they were a Christian family. I don't think there was any belief in that family. I don't know. I don't think there was. And all there was was loss and tragedy. That was the only thing they had to say, just to share in it together. But then you do funerals of Christians and it's like a totally different kettle of fish, you know. Sometimes it's almost like a celebration because it's just like, oh, you know, Auntie Bethel, you know, she's, she's now, she's freed. Like, you know, she was struggling along there for a while and now she's in heaven, you know, and... All of the, the, the weaknesses of flesh is gone. And there's just an opportunity to just be reminded of this hope that springs eternal. To one, the aroma is death. To another, the aroma is life. Do you know what I mean? It's like the same situation, the same thing is happening. People are being confronted with their own mortality. And to one group, all it is is death. And to the other, all it is is life. I was just like, yeah, that's so true. And it is like we, when you're there, when you're in it, oh, man, it's a powerful difference that two people might be smelling that same aroma and just come away with two completely different experiences of, of, of what's happened. Uh, so it is with Paul. Uh, so it is with us as we go through life and we try to, bring the aroma of Christ to our friends and our family, our neighbours. For some, it will be life. And for some, it will be death. But there is this hope that springs eternal for those that, sent, uh, for, for those that smell the aroma of Christ and recognise what it means. Let me quickly have a, a, a look at verse 17 and I'll, and I'll, I'll wrap it up here. Um, for those that peddle Christ. And I want to think about that a little bit, that idea a little bit. Um, how do we peddle Christ? I, I like the translation. They've, they've done a good, a good job. Um, how do we peddle Christ? You know, the temptation is often to go, hey, look at how good it's going for me. Don't you want a bit of that? You know? Like often the temptation is, hey, I've got this thing and it's good. Look how together I am. 
Or we think of the great evangelists and whatever, and we're like, you know, part of what they do is they're like, you can have some of what I've got. Let me tell you how to get it. And I recognise that because you want the gospel to be attractive, 100%. But the way Paul wants to describe it here is, as one beggar telling another beggar where to find some bread, hey, he certainly, he certainly doesn't want to lift himself up as a model to be followed after. Uh, there are some Christian leaders in this world that think their position um, means that they deserve certain rewards, um, be it financial rewards, be it houses and cars and trips around the world, be it um, to have a certain elevated status. You know, there's that, that, that thing of the bag carriers for the preachers. I've, uh, it's not a thing I've seen, but it's something I've heard about and I just can't quite get my head around. Like you can't carry your own bag. I don't understand. I prefer to carry my own stuff, guys, in case you're wondering. But you can take my children, please. They're yours. There's this really interesting um, Instagram account that was started a while back. It's called Preachers and Sneakers. And what this guy did is he would take a picture from Instagram of a preacher that they've posted themselves and he would put next to it the price of their sneakers. That's all he did. He didn't say anything. He didn't make any nasty comments. He didn't say any sort of thing. All he would do is he would juxtapose the preacher and their sneakers. And the, um, the account took off and made news um, because he wasn't saying anything, but yet he was saying something really important. Hey, he was saying something really important um, about the people who we listen to, the, the people who peddle Christ and how they go about doing it. So I thought I should um, start an Instagram account called Preachers and Discount Sneakers. And it's just all the great bargains I get because I love discount shoes. Oh, my gosh, it's so good. We're going to find this out more and more as we go on, is that what Paul wants to say to the people in Corinth, he says, is that if you have, do not have humility, you don't understand the core of the gospel. If you do not have humility, you can't preach it to anyone else because you don't understand it yourself. That one of the central things to grasp in understanding the life and the work of who Jesus is, is that he was the son of God, the Messiah, who humbled himself to frail flesh. He humbled himself to death, even though death had no right or authority over him. He humbles himself to death, not just of a normal person, but death on a cross that we might live. And if you can't have that humility or understand that humility in your own walk, then you're sadly missing something that is really, really important. Humility is this core value to those who follow Christ. For those who understand the walk that Jesus has walked and try and follow in it. Uh, and as we understand that and as we, we absorb that idea of the humility of Christ, how much more must we throw away our pride? How much more must we rid ourselves of thinking we can do it on our own strength? of relying on ourselves? How much more must we submit our lives to the will of God who has submitted himself to death on a cross that we might live? Paul sees it in this sense that he has forfeited his life and he walks as a captive in the procession, 
so has he humbled himself in recognition of what Christ has done. It's funny how 2,000 years, so much can change and yet so much can stay exactly the same. We're going to find this out more and more as we go through the book of um, 2 Corinthians. But let me challenge you with this. Uh, Ben, if you guys would like to come up. Do you follow Christ with humility in your heart? Or is there a pride that you need to let go of? Is there a pride you need to repent of? and hand over to Christ? Is there a self-reliance that's actually blocking you imitating the humility of Christ that you need to let go of? Is there some worldly notions of strength or importance or status that nag at you, even though you know they shouldn't, but they do, that you need Christ to do a work in your heart just to just to deal with once and for all. We're going to have an opportunity in our final song um, to maybe meditate on anything that you have in your heart that, that you need to bring to God in prayer. And if there's something at the end, we'd love for you to come down the front. We'd love to pray with you about it. Um, but let me pray, and then we'll have our final song together. Dear Lord, you um, are the God that has shown us um, so much about ourselves and so much about this world, Lord, that... We, we really wouldn't know a thing if it wasn't for you. Lord, you show us what love is through your sending of your son. and In the work of your son and the way he ministered to the people, we, we see what humility is. Lord, let us be those captives in your procession. Lord, that just everywhere we go, the aroma of Christ follows Lord, that people who smell it, that recognise that there is something here, they might not know what it means, but they might recognise that something is going on. Lord, I pray that if there's any pride in our hearts, Lord, you might just help us to hand that over to you. You might just help us let go of anything that's actually blocking us from really humbling ourselves before you, really submitting, Lord. Lord, if there's those nagging things of the world that we know we shouldn't worry about, but, Lord, we do, Lord, I pray that you might do a work in our heart, that we, we, we might have the veil pulled back and see truly what is important in this world. We just thank you so much for your word. And as we continue through 2 Corinthians, Lord, we pray that you will continue to reveal in our hearts the truth of what it is to be a humble follower of you. Lord, we just pray all these things now in your son's name. Amen.